God, we ask for your help. We ask that you would open our eyes to be able to see who you are. God, we recognize that we live in a world and there's a lot of things that not only we see, but there's a lot of things that we don't see. And God, oftentimes it's the things that we don't see that have this influence upon that which we do see. And it leads to brokenness and hurt and pain and ruin in many of our lives. And yet, God, we can't deny those things, though we oftentimes do. But God, the good news is that in spite of the influence that those things have had upon our lives by way of brokenness, Jesus, you have not abandoned us. You have not forsaken us. You've come to do something about the pain, the hurt, the brokenness, and the death. And God, that's, that's, that's what we call the good news, that you are a king that has come to bring a new reordering according to your kingdom. So God, we ask right now that you would open our eyes to the beauty and the magnitude and the greatness of your kingdom, but you would also open our eyes to uh, the forces that are trying to undermine and undo everything that your kingdom is intent on doing. So help us, we pray, and we ask for your strength and your wisdom to be given to us right now. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start by saying that one of the things that we've been doing in the book of Ephesians for quite some time, we started at around January, and we've been going through this book, and we're about, I don't know, week 40 or so, something like that in this book, and uh, we've been spending a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, typically, what I do uh, as a pastor, I, I love and I feel most comfortable just taking verses in the Bible or books in the Bible and reading through them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and just unpacking that. We call that actually expositional preaching or expositional teaching. It's what I'm most comfortable with. Um, what I'm least comfortable with are what typically is called kind of top, topical studies, where you kind of take topics and sort of launch out on those things. Um, and the reason for that is oftentimes is not only does it require a whole heck of a lot more work, but um, it can also be sometimes we, as a regular habit, um, if you just simply focus on topics, you can oftentimes miss the, the larger purpose of what's happening here. So what we've been doing over the past several weeks, we've been sort of on a kind of a semi, if you would, topical series in spiritual warfare. And this is actually kind of spearheaded or launched from the passage in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about uh, putting on spiritual armor uh, so that we could withstand the wiles or the temptations of the devil or the methods of the devil. And one of the things that we've been saying all along is that what we have really kind of on a cosmic level, on a larger global level with regard to reality within the world that we live in, is that we have brokenness all around us. We have brokenness within us. We have brokenness outside of us. We have brokenness within neighborhood. We have brokenness within our governmental system. We have brokenness within nations. We have brokenness all around us. And one of the things that we recognize that God has done, is John 3.16 kind of encapsulates one of those famous verses that we love to promote and talk about and memorize and put on coffee mugs, is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So what we see sort of in that passage is that God has not forsaken or abandoned this world in its brokenness, but he's chosen to do something about that brokenness, to bring healing in place of brokenness, to bring order in the place of disorder, to bring life in the place of death. And this is what we call, really spearheaded by Jesus, Good news. It's really good news. Because living in a world where there's filled with death and brokenness and sorrow and pain and hurt and sickness and disease, that's not good news. Those are the things that oftentimes make up our lives. And oftentimes we're not sure where those things come from or where they're ultimately going to end up taking us. And that ultimately leads to a whole series of 
fears and anxieties and uh, suffering that we find ourselves engaged in. And what Paul tells us is that even though we have a God uh, that seeks to do something about the brokenness, there's also dark forces, evil forces, Paul identifies as Satan or the devil, that are at work trying to undo and undermine everything good that God is up to or God is seeking to do. So for example, you could be a Christian following Jesus, doing all the good Christian stuff, reading your Bible, going to church, having your little quiet time, journaling, wearing Christian t-shirts, buying Christian mugs with John 3.16 on it, so on and so forth. You can be doing all that. Typical modern Christian culture says, this is what a good Christian does. There's a little bit of cynicism in there. So um, the point of the matter is, is that we can be doing all those good things that Christian society tells us you've got to do to be a good Christian. And yet we can still oftentimes find ourselves operating from or within realms of brokenness. And what the Bible is going to tell us is that the reason for that brokenness um, may have to do with certain forms of sin that we may be engaging in. But the reality is that behind that sin is and are influences that are trying to get us to take the bait to engage in various forms of activity or sin or concepts or ideas that oftentimes lead to our constant unfolding brokenness. One of the things that we looked at a couple weeks ago was there's a guy by the name of Thomas Brooks, and he wrote this great book. Um, and within that, he describes that one of the ways in which the devil tries to bring ruin and brokenness into our hearts, into our lives, is by sort of basically getting us to take bait. Uh, and then once we take the bait, that hook kind of reels us in and leads us to further brokenness. But the thing is, is that the bait that the enemy uses is always different and distinct for each one of us. Because the things that might tempt you are totally different than the things that might tempt me. And so he, he's basically, uh, he analyzes, he studies us. It'd be kind of like he's a good sociologist. He understands not just simply humanity as a whole and how humanity works, but he also has studied you and he knows how you work. He knows the things, the steps, the missteps that you may take and the temptations that may tempt you to lure you away into places of brokenness. And it's not that he's trying to bring brokenness into your life because you are somebody of great you know, threat to him, because you're really not. It's really that Satan hates God. And because God loves you, he is like the ultimate terrorist. Rather than going to the guy and bringing terror into his life, he goes to the guy's family and terrorizes his wife and kids. This is what the devil does. He tries to attack and crush and destroy you because he hates God. He is completely uh, in opposition to the ways of God. And so, therefore, you and I may suffer because we take the bait that leads us astray, it leads us away, and leads us to areas of brokenness, the very undoing of what God wants to do. So one of the things that we've been saying all along is that God is the God of creation and new creation, and Satan really is the deity or king or quasi-deity of anti-creation or thinks he's a deity of trying to undo all the good things that God is wanting to do, bringing about anti-creation, undoing what God intends to do. We call this, in short, spiritual warfare. And that's what Paul has been talking about. So what we've been doing over the past several weeks, we've been taking various ideas and concepts that are linked to various devices of the devil or tactics of the devil and basically going through them one by one. Um, some of them we've gone a couple in one message, a couple of them we've just done one whole message on one of them. 
And this is where it gets a little bit disconcerting for me is because, like I said, um, I'm normally a Bible guy that takes, takes passages and reads through them. This has kind of required me to sort of spend the whole time just on one subject. And I typically would like to just get through this entire subject or tackle like five or six things on a list. Um, but for some reason, God is just having me go slower through this and focus on some of these things one by one, uh, a couple of them sometimes in one week, uh, but most of the time just kind of one per week for whatever reason. And my hope is that somehow it, it be, it's, it's a blessing to you. It's a, something that God brings information or informs you or helps you so that as you hear God's word going forth and being spoken, that you're able to have a better understanding and idea at some of the tactics that the devil uses to bring about destruction in your life. So what I want to take a look at right now is I want to read a couple of the passages that we've been looking at, and there's basically been four that we've been focusing on and allowing to kind of inform our understanding as to how uh, spiritual warfare works. I'll read through all four of them right now. I just want you to listen to them as I read through them. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 says this. In each one of these, Paul basically gives uh, what would be called an imperative. He gives sort of a command, an order, uh, telling us to do something, and it's oftentimes in response to something. So, for example, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the imperative here is to put on the whole armor of God. And the reason for that is so that when the schemes or the methods of the devil come against you and seek to undermine God's good work in your life, rather than you being thrown on your back and being forced to tap out, you'll be able to stand. Uh, standing on your feet is a posture of readiness. Lying on your back is a posture of uh, vulnerability. So Paul would prefer that if you are to stand when the devil attacks, that you will be able to, uh, you'll do so by way of putting on the armor of God. Second verse, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So there's not much of a, 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 command, a command in here, per se, as much as Paul's informing those how he's saying, I, here's how I want you to understand these things. So really, if you want to put it into a command, basically what Paul is saying, don't be outwitted by Satan. Um, don't be ignorant of his designs, which means the tendency for all of us is to be outwitted by Satan and to be ignorant of his tactics, which means that most of us, when we are being attacked or being tempted by various forms of spiritual warfare, we're not aware of the fact that it's actual spiritual warfare. We just think it's normal in our lives. Uh, But one of the ways in which you can identify whether or not it's spiritual warfare or not is to ask yourself, where is it leading you? Where is it taking you? If whatever it is that you have bought into, or whatever it is that you are swallowing by way of bait, if it's leading you away from God, if it's leading to you to, towards further brokenness, further pain, further shame, further defilement, as opposed to further life, further love, further opening up to God's goodness, further running and pressing on into him, further uh, love and forgiveness towards other people, then chances are it's actually part of the devil's design to get you away. And you may or may not be, based upon the circumstances, be ignorant to those things. Paul's point is that I want you to be ignorant of those things. The third thing is James chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the imperative here is 
are really are two things. One, submit yourselves to God. Two, resist the devil. And as a result, the devil will flee from you. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, he says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the imperatives here are be sober-minded, be watchful, be in a posture of, of, of awareness. Um, and then the, the other thing that he says is uh, resist the devil. Resist the devil, and ultimately we know as what James says, and he will flee from you. So one of the things that we've been pointing out by way of the forms of demonic attack that the devil brings upon us, we've kind of made a distinguishing factors between two of them. We've basically said that there are uh, common forms of demonic activity, and then there are blatant forms of demonic <coughs> activity. So over the past several weeks, we've been really focusing on kind of a list, more, more or less, of common demonic types of activity. And way that we define this is that these are frequently occurring actions that ultimately uh, uh, lead to brokenness. We, we, we know that they lead to brokenness, but most of the times we're just simply accustomed to the fact that this is the way it is, so therefore we don't really see it as demonic. We're not really moved or gripped by the reality. There may be something dark and dubious about this, so we just simply accept it as the reality. Um, why don't you go to the next slide real quick and take a look at this list. I'll show you a handful of these things that we've looked at over the past several weeks. So I'm not going to go through all of these because this is what we've been looking at over the past several weeks. If you're interested in this, just go to our website. All of them should be on there. You can download them for free. One, lying, I think, is the most predominant one on this list. Uh, lying is so common, so regular within our culture, within our world, within our neighborhood, within our lives, within our government, within our workplaces, within our workspaces, that we just tend to think it's just normal. It's just the way it is. It's just sort of the language of this world, lying. It's how you get by. And what Jesus actually says, that lying is really not how you just get by. Lying is how you ultimately lead to a path of brokenness, because lying actually is, Jesus would say, the language of the devil. It's how the devil speaks. It's what he says. So, for example, as we've been saying, that if you engage within the practices of lying, living duplicitous lifestyles, uh, living in such a way whereby you're trying to be deceptive uh, towards other loved ones and people around you, uh, there's a tendency at some point, once you are found out, they will bring great pain and brokenness within your life. In other words, breakdown, destruction, uh, suffering, hurt. If you've ever been in a relationship where somebody has had consistently lied to you, and then you found out that has never been a good situation, has it? This is what I'm saying, is that that influence is actually promoted by the devil. So we would call that actually demonic. There's a demonic influence or stronghold, if you want to look at it, that needs to be broken there. But again, like I said, it's so common within our world that we never pause to actually look at it and call it as demonic. We're just like, oh, this is normal. But that's what I'm saying, is that it's demonic, and the reason why we know it's demonic because if you follow its trajectory, it will always lead to breakdown. Is this making sense? Kind of. Sort of? Okay. Anyways, another one is unrighteousness, uh, disintegration. We said disintegration is sort of the opposite of shalom or peace, disbelief, destruction, pride, sexual temptation, um, bitterness, jealousy, selfish ambition, Idleness, gossip, another one that's not on the list, but it was when we looked at it last week, was being a busybody, uh, drunkenness. Again, all of these things are part of the list. The reason why they made it on this list is because Paul, or some of the other writers that attribute or talk about these things, actually describe each of these things as somehow being influenced by satanic or demonic activity. And this is why they're on the list. But again, if you look at most of these, you're like, 
Every single one of these are just part of the movie that you just watched last night. Or part of, you know, relationships that you might even find yourself in. Or part of the work environment that you are working at. Or part of the 6 o'clock news. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're so common that we're just like, that's like normal. And what I'm saying is that it may be normal in this world. But do you understand that this world should not be the paradigm that we live according to if we're expecting to live in a form of flourishing? Because this world's broken, right? It's, it doesn't flourish. In our lives, if we live according to those things, we actually find ourselves engaging the same brokenness that this world's engaged in all the time. And this is what Jesus has come to save us from, to rescue us from this world, to rescue us from the brokenness that's predominant within this world. Jesus basically comes and says, I present an alternative way, a counter kingdom to the kingdom that's uh, ubiquitous within this world, that is running this world, that is governing this world. I've come to offer life that is beyond the life that's being offered within this world. This is what Jesus offers to us. So the second thing we'll take a look at is blatant demonic, and that's kind of what we'll talk about right now. So why don't you go back, if you could, real quick to that slide, and uh, take a look at uh, blatant demonic, and we'll jump ahead real quick after this. So this is less frequent occurrent activity, um, uh, frequent frequently happening activity, and this oftentimes causes overwhelming brokenness and oftentimes leaves us feeling powerless. So in other words, uh, why don't you skip ahead real quick to the other side, and then when we see this type of activity within this world, uh, we oftentimes feel overwhelmed. We feel powerless according to it. Some of these things might be physical harm, death, or murder. These, I would say, are blatant, meaning that anytime they happen, there's something about them that we just simply know is not okay. So when somebody gets diagnosed with brain cancer, we never celebrate that. We're always grieving with them. It's always a moment for tears and loss because we know the path ahead for that person and those who love that person is nothing but deep pain. Does that make sense? Death, death never gets celebrated except perhaps in the case of Christians. One of the reasons why Paul, talk more of this in a moment, but Paul talks about those that die in Christ, those that die within this relationship with Jesus, uh, they grieve, but their grief is different than those that die without Jesus. So this is blatant. And again, when this type of stuff happens, we feel really, for the most part, powerless in the face of some of these things. Emotional torment is another one. This is kind of the idea where our minds are overwhelmed by, by uh, just another way to describe it, other than feeling tormented by uh, evil thoughts. It may be having a reoccurring evil dream that wakes you up in the middle of the night and you wake up and you just feel uh, the, the presence of nothing but wickedness. You wake up and you realize something's gnarly going on. This is not right. This is not good. You may call someone, have them pray for you. Uh, If you have a little kid, they come into your room and they want to jump in bed with you and want you to pray for them. It's because there's a demonic element going on here. It's what I would just simply call emotional torment. Again, when it happens, you feel powerless according to it. I'll go through these real quick and we'll get to them. uh, Not today, but false miracles, false prophets, false teaching, condemnations, and accusations. But I want to focus right now on really the very first one there. And that's what I would describe as physical harm, death, and Murder, physical harm, death, and murder. And I'm going to read a couple passages, and we'll read actually a bunch of passages that sort of begin to lay this out. Before I jump into this, I'm going to say that this is sort of, um, uh, we've got to take really great care, uh, really, I think, uh, addressing this. And here's the reason why. Throughout uh, at least North America, that has sort of seeped over uh, into other parts of the world, uh, primarily Africa and other parts of uh, South Africa, is what's commonly known as a prosperity doctrine or prosperity gospel. And basically, the prosperity gospel, oftentimes known as health and wealth and whatever, 
um, oftentimes basically says that all forms of sickness, disease, and death are of the devil. That part is totally accurate. I would agree with that. But where it oftentimes begins to move is to begin to say that if you currently are still suffering with sickness, disease, perhaps die, it's because you do not have and have not exercised the proper amount of faith to trust God to heal you. And the problem with that is, is, well, all sorts of problems. One of which is that's simply not the storyline that we see within the Bible. Secondly, is that when people uh, are, are confronted with that type of teaching, it mounts onto their shoulders in an unbelievable amount of guilt and shame and oppression. Because they oftentimes find themselves, perhaps, uh, not being made well in the midst of their sickness. And then they begin to question whether or not they're even saved, whether or not they really know God. And it begins to feed kind of this deep insecurity and oftentimes sets all forms of uh, bad relationship between them and God and others. And so, for example, I've talked with people before that have been uh, involved in circumstances like this, and they always feel this, have had felt this overwhelming sense of uh, fear and shame and frustration with God because God has not done something for them, or they feel a sense of overwhelming despair because something's wrong with the Christianity. So I would suggest, first of all, that these types of theological presuppositions actually, I think, are misleading and unbiblical and lead to human languishing as opposed to human flourishing. Somebody flourishes. Primarily, it's the gospel preacher on television who's saying, if you trust me, if you send in your love gift, God will heal you. They're the ones that flourish. Everyone else languishes. You'll get that later. But the point of the matter is, oftentimes, these lead to brokenness. So the point that I want to emphasize is that Really, when we begin to take a look at the concept of physical harm, death, and murder, is, or sickness, uh, suffering, and death, that there is a spiritual element to this that we actually read about within the New Testament. I'll read you a couple passages of this. Luke chapter 13, verse 10, is the story of Jesus going into a synagogue on a Sabbath, and here's what it says. Now, when he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, he says, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. The word disabling spirit basically means uh, this concept of a weakening spirit or a, 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 an emotional spirit or something physical that was like affecting her physical well-being. It goes on to say that she had this for 18 years. Luke was a doctor, so Luke oftentimes kind of fills in the blank for some of these symptoms that she was suffering under. He goes on to say that she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Uh, Then when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And then this is where it gets kind of technical in terms of the theological linking between sickness, uh, in this case with this woman, and demonic activity. So here's what Jesus then says in response to the religious leaders who basically are pushing back on Jesus's miracle, saying, how dare you, you know, heal somebody on a Sabbath. Sabbath is sort of like their sacred holy day. And uh, to their uh, interpretation, that no work could be done on a sacred holy day. In this case, Jesus, what he was doing in terms of healing this lady, was uh, paramount to actually working. And so this frustrated and aggravated the religious leaders. So they pulled Jesus aside and rebuke him. Then Jesus responds in verse 15. He says, Then the Lord answered, and he said to them, You hypocrites, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed? from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus attaches or associates her sickness to Satan actually binding her, to somehow 
causing her to have this form of pain and struggle for 18 years. One other side note that I think is just you know, great to note is that these religious leaders can't get themselves to really identify with this lady other than the lady that had you know, the messed up life. You know, she's the lady that was bent over. So you imagine this is the lady that oftentimes uh, becomes anonymous within a culture and a society where everybody walks upright, where everybody has their life somewhat together. So when you see somebody that's literally physically cowered over and they can't walk right, this is the one where maybe kids as they would see this lady from a distance, would perhaps make fun of her. Other people would just simply, uh, maybe older people, rather than making fun of her, they would kind of avoid her. And other people would maybe, maybe uh, just re, uh, respond to her and identify her as being the lady with you know, the baggage or the lady with the messed up back or the lady who can't stand up straight or whatever the case is. All of these are subtle barbs to basically identify the fact that this lady is really, to some degree, more or less subhuman. But one of the most amazing, liberating, beautiful things that Jesus does with this lady is he actually identifies her as being a daughter of Abraham. What Jesus is doing is he's basically elevating her brokenness, her womanhood, which has been broken by sin, destruction, pain, Satan, and basically saying she bears the image of God. She is a child of Abraham. She has value, dignity, worth. This is an important thing because, again, we as human beings, maybe most of us in this room, I would assume, have, we're basically pretty healthy. So the tendency is for us, if we look at somebody or know somebody who's sick or broken or hurting, to think something less about them. Well, maybe the reason why they're that way is because they don't pray enough or they don't love God. And this is really kind of the argument that was going on throughout the book of Job. Job, maybe the reason why you're suffering because you're not trusting God, your life is not in right relationship with God. So the tendency is oftentimes to think less of people that are hurting and suffering. And yet all the time, Jesus has this rehumanizing impact and effect upon all. It's an amazing reality that Jesus basically says to this woman, she is a daughter of Abraham. But back on track, what Jesus basically points out is that this woman was bound by Satan for 18 years. And Jesus basically unbound her. That's what happened. Jesus unbound her. Jesus brought healing to her. Matthew chapter 9, verse 32 is another passage I want to read. says this, And as they were going away, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Verse 33 says, And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in all Israel. But the Pharisees, again, here's these guys, again, frustrated, saying, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. So again, these guys recognize a couple things. One, that Jesus actually cast out demons or uh, had undone what the demons had done. In this case, what looks like the demons have done is make this guy incapable of speaking. So again, we can pause and look at this for a moment in modern mindset and think, it seems kind of hocus pocus. You know, the Bible seems to be talking about all this type of stuff. Now we know, you know, again, we can look at this from an angle of saying, we know that people are not deaf or mute in today's world because of demon oppression. They're mute or deaf or whatever because of some sort of physical malady. And so we might read this through the lens and being like, we're far more matured, far more knowledgeable, this type of stuff. And so therefore to associate it with demonic activity seems a little bit metaphysical or mythological. So let's not do that. But the reality is, is I think the point and the principle still remains is that all forms of death, sickness, disease are not part of God's original design to bring about flourishing. 
all of them, to some degree, always, at some point, lead to a sense of languishing and brokenness. It's typically the people that are in the midst of the greatest suffering, that have the greatest calm, and can be the greatest encourager in the midst of their suffering are the people we walk away from those encounters and are like, oh my gosh, they're amazing. I just met the most saintliest woman or most saintliest dude because in the midst of their pain, they are still praising God. Have you ever met people like that? They're an anomaly. When we meet them, we're shocked by them. When we meet them, we're like, I hope I'm like that. If ever I find myself in the midst of those circumstances. Because what's happening is even in the midst of their pain, suffering, and perhaps in the face of death, they're not allowing those things to define them. Oftentimes, those are people that have followed Jesus because they met Christ. They know that God is working in their life to undo the sickness and suffering. And at some point, he will, even though it may not happen in this particular moment, which I'll get to that in just a second, the ideas behind that. The final one I read is John chapter 8, verse 44, where Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do his father's your father's desires, and then this is what Jesus says, that he was a murderer from the beginning. So if you want to put it this way, that we live in a world where God, when God originally created all things, he created all things so that they would flourish and thrive, so that life would continue to be life-giving and life-generating. And then what came into this world, as we typically identify it, is the fall or sin or uh, enters into this world, whatever happens, what we do know that happens is life begins to degenerate, begins to break down. The system of life flourishing begins to transform into life languishing. And the promise that God makes in Genesis chapter 3 is that he promises that one day he's going to undo what the serpent has done. And we know that ultimately, this is exactly what God did through Jesus. Jesus comes and he undoes what Satan has done to bring life, to bring flourishing into this world, to undo sickness, death, and disease. Now, two things that we can say about this. One is that suffering, sickness, and disease is ultimately not natural. So as I mentioned, in the garden, when God originally created mankind, I think it would be safe to say that in that state, that as we know it, death, sickness, and disease did not exist. As we know it, death, sickness, and disease did not exist. That was a byproduct, if you would, of rebellion of man, turning away from God. And so the idea that I think that's being conveyed here is that when we are in right relationship with God, that we live, we have life. Jesus describes God as being uh, life. God is life. In God is life. So to be in right relationship or right alignment with God would mean you would flourish. Your life would actually come to life in the most truest, purest, real sense. But here's the trick that oftentimes happens. This is where the devil comes in, oftentimes baits our hook with all forms of alternatives. Uh, One author I was reading, he described it this way, that Jesus is the bread of life, and yet we oftentimes as human beings are satisfied by donuts and sweet bread instead of the true bread of life. So we fill ourselves with all these other things that taste great in the moment, but ultimately lead to our destruction. And so what we see is to be in right relationship with God is what we would call life, eternal life. To not be in right relationship with God, to 
buy into alternatives, to take the bait that oftentimes is offered to us, actually leads us away from God and leads us into a place of brokenness, destruction, and death, ultimately. And Jesus has come to undo that. So suffering, sickness, and death is ultimately not natural. But this is something that God has sought to undo. Now, what we read real quick is that, for example, Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul writes, and he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. So the word that he uses there for weakness is actually the same word that he uses to describe the woman that was suffering. It says that she had this disabling spirit. So Paul seems to be implying that in this world, we will have various forms of weaknesses, or the way it's translated in other places, sicknesses or disease. We will have them. So that raises the question, does God in this life always, under every circumstance, bring healing? The answer has to be no. Can God, does God bring healing? Absolutely he does. Jesus did all sorts of healings. The disciples did all sorts of healings. Jesus said to his disciples, there's going to come a day where you are going to do greater things than even what I did. And therefore, that would imply that even we as the church who pray for people, who step out in faith and pray for those that may have sickness or disease, we may see God bring healings to people. There are people in this church that have been healed by God in various forms, physically. And really, anytime God heals somebody, what we basically would consider that is We know that ultimately, one day, God will bring about ultimate healing over all things. So when we see God heal somebody right now in response to praying, which means, you know, asking God, God, would you heal this person from their sickness or their cancer or their disease? What we're really seeing is that we're basically borrowing in that moment from the future healing that we will want to have. So it's like God saying, I'll let you guys have a trailer of what's to come. Here's a little glimpse. There's a little image. There's a little snapshot of what will one day come and will cover this entire planet. It's not in an ultimate sense, so because everybody that gets healed in this life right now will, sadly, say, get the breaking news to you, die. Uh, I know that comes as a huge shock to all of us. We're like, really? Die? Really? Is that where it ends? But the fact of the matter is, again, like I said, there are times when God may heal. Yes, right now. We believe that God is a healing God, and he may heal if he chooses. But oftentimes, God will either say yes to your prayer in moments of sickness and distress and disease and hardship, and he'll heal you now, or he will say, no, for right now, but I will give you grace in its place. I will help you. This is why Paul, I think, could say, so it is, uh, really, this whole idea, this notion, he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray, but right now the Holy Spirit helps us and intercedes for us. So what, really, I think Paul is implying is that There's going to be moments in this life where God will say no to your healing. But instead, God will say, I'll give you my restorative healing presence. And my grace will be sufficient for you. It will bring satisfaction to you if you delight in me. Here's the problem. Because this kind of raises the problem. A lot of us kind of have this mentality in our minds. So especially as Westernized Christians, we tend to think like, well, how come God doesn't always answer my prayer every single time? Are you ready for the answer? Because God's not your genie. He's not your accessory. If he is God, that means there's going to be times when, as your God, God will say no to you. 
Are you okay with that? And I think we're really honest with ourselves. That's offensive to us. Because we want a God that is like a genie, or like at least a grandpa, that when our lives are down, he will make our lives feel better. Or when our lives are ugly, as an accessory to our lives, he'll make us feel pretty, feel handsome, feel strong. But this is not the God of the Bible. This is the God that you have made up, and the God that you make up, or the gods that we create, ultimately in the moments where we need them most, cannot rescue you. This is why we have to be honest with the Scripture and honest with this God that is, as C.S. Lewis describes, totally, completely untamable. Is your God untamable? Though good. This is the idea. There's going to be times when God will say, yes, I'll heal you now, in response to your faith and trust in me. And there's going to be times when God will say, no, I won't heal you now, but I will give you my presence. My grace will be sufficient for you if you love me. It'll satisfy you, and you'll be like one of those people that you met that's going through great, horrendous, horrific types of circumstances, yet have found the most unbelievable moments of contentment and joy in the midst of suffering. So this is what we oftentimes see that Paul is kind of preparing our hearts for. I think this is a really important thing to kind of meditate upon and think about, because much of, again, westernized Christianity, we want this God that satisfies our needs anytime that we need but here's what happens. When he doesn't satisfy our needs, what's our response? Anger. How dare you, God, not do what I've asked you to do? Just that idea basically puts us, now that doesn't mean that there's going to be moments, and there's not going to be moments, where out of pure sorrow, out of pure confusion, you might cry out to God and say, God, where are you? I mean, one of the psalmists says, God, every single day we suffer and you stand by idly. Where are you, God? So you got to love the rawness of the prayers in the Psalms, but at the same time, we have to wrestle with the reality that there's going to be times when God says no to us. But what we see in an ultimate sense is that God will one day bring about healing and restoration. That's why Paul can say, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, and I was with you in weakness. Again, the word weakness is the same word that's translated uh, or that's used within the description of this lady who had a, a spirit of weakness or a spirit of sickness, is that Paul is saying, I was with you as one who was sick, broken, in fear and in trembling. The second thing I would notice is that suffering, sickness, and death ultimately will be undone. And this is the great hope that we have. This is the great hope that we have. See, like, think of it this way. As human beings, we want death, sickness, and suffering to be done, to be undone, I should say, as quickly as possible. In fact, I would even say that we as a society and as a culture are working feverishly to somehow figure out ways to end all forms of suffering, sickness, disease, and death. In fact, if you think of it, this is what oftentimes drives much of medical institute, institutes and research and study and development is to somehow figure out ways so that we can prolong our lives. But we also realize that we don't want to just simply live long. We also want to experience the best that life has to offer. So that means that we need to be able to at least somehow maintain a sense of youthfulness in the midst of living long. You guys understand? So if we're going to simply be, you know, 95 years old, we don't want to look like a 95-year-old person. 
We want to look like, if you're going to be 95, we want to at least look like a 65-year-old dude with six-pack abs, right? It's for a dude. All right, maybe for a girl as well. But if the reality is we want to somehow be forever young, and so we're always figuring out new forms, new ways to keep ourselves forever young, as if somehow we could live forever based upon our own. Because we know in this world that sickness, suffering, and death are not normal. So we try hard to make this up ourselves. And we know in the end, we fail every time. So we invest lots of money, spend lots of time, invest in lots of research, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we end up looking like an old person that has a stretched out face filled with all sorts of needle points and Botox and so on and so forth. And if that's what you think looks awesome, that's cool. That's, I'm not judging, so don't send me emails. I'm just simply saying that this is the world in which we live in. Or what Jesus says is that there will come a day where I will restore all things. I will bring an ultimate form of healing. I want you to listen to a couple of the ways in which he points this out, that he will do this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll finish here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42. just want you to listen to what Paul has to say. He's talking about what's called the resurrection. So if you want to think of it this way, uh, this world has uh, a, a problem. The problem, in its ultimate sense, is Sin, sickness, and then in its ultimate sense, death. Death is the ultimate problem within this world. Death is the one thing that every single one of us will succumb to. That's, I, I realize that's not like a cheerful message right there, but the reality is true. We have to face it. We have to come to grips with the fact that that is the reality, that death is the one ruling agent in this world that has, for the most part, never been undone, never been conquered until Jesus came. And the most amazing thing that we see with Jesus is that he did not, he allowed death, death overcame him. Jesus was in the grave, he was dead, and yet he rose again. We call that resurrection. Paul would later say that Jesus actually is the first fruits of all creation. In other words, Jesus becomes sort of the prototype, the prototypical picture of what God will one day do with all things. So if you want to think of it this way, where God is taking this whole universe, including yourself, if you follow Jesus... That this whole universe, which is nothing but mastered by death currently, will one day undergo a cosmic resurrection. It will be renewed in the most profound, most beautiful, most life-giving way. And those who follow Jesus will be renewed along with it. So Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, so is it with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown perishable, What is raised imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness. That word weakness, again, is the same word that's used to describe the woman's malady. It is raised in power. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, he goes on to say, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality, or this mortal body must put on immortality. Uh, When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come, the, come to pass the saying that is written. He's referring to the resurrection. Death, here's a little statement that was used and circulated within the early church. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? So it's the idea, like here's you got Paul basically looking at sort of this great master called death. This, this, this tyrant that constantly conquers everybody. So if you think of it this way, Everybody in our lives at some point will pass away. 
Um, um, Nine Inch Nails wrote a song a while back, and then Johnny Cash redid it called Empire Dirt. It's this amazing song, and in it describes, like, everything I know is going to go away in the end. It's the picture that everything that we have in this world, no matter how life-giving it may feel in the moment, at some point it will fall from our grip, and it will go away in the end. In the end, it's nothing more, if you would, than an empire of dirt. And what Jesus is saying, that Paul is reiterating, is that death is not the end if you are a follower of the king who's conquered death. So the question is, are you following this king? Is he your king? Is he just an accessory to your life? Is he your king? Or is he just somebody that you turn to in moments of challenge and hardship? Is he your king? Because if he's your king... He'll rescue you. May not be in this moment, in the suffering and the sickness and the hardship right now. If he's your king, he will one day rescue you, ultimately, in the end. And I finish with this passage out of the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Now the worship team, come on up, and I want to just read this, and I want you guys to listen to what he has to say. He says, then I saw, it's kind of the second to last passage or second to last chapter in the entire Bible. This is yet a future depiction of what will one day come. And so the writer John says this, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So the picture is is this earth that's filled with brokenness and lying and death, hardship, suffering, pain, and sickness is something that cannot be sustained forever. In fact, at some point is going the way whereby it will be remade new. And this is what John perceives. He says, and I saw in the holy city that's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things that are associated with this world have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is our God that invites us to lay aside those things that are constantly making things old and destroyed in our lives. So the call that Jesus would say is, Will you come to the table and feast from the bread that I give you? It's the bread that gives you life. Or will you continue to hold on to sweet bread, Donuts, all these things that are loaded with brokenness and are proven to lead to destruction. Or we eat the bread of life that I give. This is an invitation. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, meaning you've never really given your life to Jesus, or maybe you thought you were a Christian, but in reality Jesus may have been just simply nothing more than a religious icon or an addition to your life. This is an invitation for you to come to Jesus to bow your knee to him as king and submit your heart to him. Submit your fears to him. Submit your ways to him. Submit your life to him and let him make you new. Receive his promise. Receive what he gives you. Recognize that he may give you things. He may withhold things. He may take things away. But if he is God and if he is untamable as God, But if he's also good, that means that everything that he gives us from his hand at some point will lead to our flourishing. We either trust that and lead into that life of flourishing 
what Jesus calls everlasting life, or we distrust that and disbelieve that and continue to map out our own, chart out our own little course that at some point will lead to brokenness. So I want to invite you to come to that table to feast from his hand. We have some communion in the back that would invite you to literally take the bread and the cup and partake of this thing that we call the Lord's Supper. We'll have some people off the, at the front that would love to pray for you. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you'd like to get some more information. So what that is, you'd like to have somebody pray for you. There'll be people up there to pray for you. If you are struggling with any form of sickness or disease, maybe God wants to heal you today. Wouldn't that be amazing? If maybe what God was just waiting for was for you to do what James says, like gather some of the people in the church and have them anoint you with oil and have them pray for you. And maybe the prayer for the sick will set you free. Maybe Jesus wants to heal you. So maybe some of you just by faith, trust God. Maybe he wants to heal you. So have someone pray for you. We'll have some people off to the side as well. Maybe ask a neighbor or someone that you know around you. But let's place our confidence in Jesus. Let's sing to him. So why don't we all stand? Let me pray and let's sing. Sound good? You guys ready? You guys good with that? Kind of? All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for great grace. Thank you, love us. God, now we want to respond to you out of gratitude. And maybe, God, out of confession of our sin and confession of our false notions and ideas that we've had about you that have actually led to our constant sense of being disappointed, brokenness frustration and anger disintegration that we want to cling to we want to resist the devil trust you